1: Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. My name is Alex Doherty, and my guest today is Paul Rogers. We spoke about why the United States carried out the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and whether the attack will spark a broader regional war. We also discussed the historical roots of Iran's defense doctrine of hybrid asymmetric warfare and why Britain would be extremely likely to assist the American military in any large scale military confrontation. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of all PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. As always, you can listen to PTO on SoundCloud, iTunes, Acast and all other good podcast applications. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at theory other. And if you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating the show on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. Paul Rogers is Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University and an Honorary Fellow of the Joint Service Command and Staff College. Paul has written and edited 30 books and over 150 papers and book chapters, including Losing Control, Global Security in the 21st Century, and Irregular War, New Threats from the Margins. His most recent publication, The Triple Paradigm Crisis, Economy, Environment and Security, will be published in the Journal of Global Fault Lines later this year. You had previously suggested in some of your writings on the US-Iran situation that although there are uh, these quite adventurous hawks within the US security establishment who favour military uh, escalation with the Islamic Republic, that you thought Donald Trump would be unlikely to sanction any such course of action. I mean, do you think that the assassination of of Qasem Soleimani, do you think that suggests that we've underestimated Trump, or perhaps that the pressure for the assassination didn't come from him necessarily, but rather from security apparatchiks at the Pentagon? Or is there a possibility that Trump perhaps simply didn't understand the magnitude of what he was doing in sanctioning the assassination?
0: I think there's a combination of factors. One is the extent of the long-term U.S. antipathy to Iran. And this goes right back to the revolution, in fact, even before the revolution of 79, and the loss of its key ally, the Shah, at the height of the Cold War. Um, Basically, with an American diplomatic culture, uh, the imprisonment or the detention of the 52 uh, diplomatic hostages for 444 days uh, and the failure of the Carter administration to get them out when Operation Eagle Claw failed all meant that this was a disaster. Not far short of the effect of DMB and Phu Foo at the end of the Indochina War on the French or even of Suez on British thinking. And I think we tended to underestimate this. But it was the loss of this ally coupled with that. And you notice how... Trump is referring to that in terms of the the 62, the 52 people who were held hostage, and 52 targets would be hit in Iran. So that's a, a long-term thing. As far as the more recent situation has been, you see actually that as far as Trump is concerned, there are problems both with North Korea and Iran, and things aren't going according to plan. Uh, I think that is causing concern, uh, particularly in the run-up to the election, which I think is another key factor. But there are others. Um, Trump tends to shoot from the hip, literally as well as figuratively, so to speak. And also, um, essentially, this is an issue which for him is fairly personal. And I would also say that there are the hawks around him. I think particularly Pompeo, um, but also one has to remember uh, basically Mike Pence, an evangelical Christian right winger, very strong in support of Israel, And I think the influence of Israel would also be a factor. So it's a combination of quite a few things all coming together. And I think a serious underestimating of how the Iranians would react. One other thing, there are some indications, I think, at least one of the U.S. papers, I think it was the Washington Post, has been reporting that, in fact, Trump was presented with a number of options when the American embassy was attacked uh, by the Pentagon. And they put a fairly extreme one in, which was basically taking out Soleimani, And some of the Pentagon people were pretty shocked uh, by Trump's decision to do this. Now, that is supported in part by what the Pentagon has been doing since. And most crucially, uh, a very big Marines amphibious operation, long planned major war game, was planned with Morocco. And in fact, an entire Marine Expeditionary Unit was in in the East Atlantic, Eastern Atlantic, for this purpose. That has been diverted, a whole unit, uh, through to the Mediterranean, probably the Eastern Mediterranean. So, hurriedly, the Pentagon isn't just putting troops in and probably more aircraft. It's actually preparing for, bluntly, if things were to go wrong in some way. So, there's no one factor involved here. It's a confluence. But the underestimate, of course, is the impact within Iran. And what we saw particularly on Monday was these massive, massive crowds in many parts of Iran, far larger than could be engineered by the current regime, in some ways overshadowing the opposition to the regime, which we've seen in many demonstrations in the last two or three months, often put down with force. The Iranians have come together to a greater extent than many analysts expected. Uh, so it does mean a combination of a pretty dangerous set of events, which could go further if we're not careful.
1: Just going back to the point about the history, I mean, is your sense that Donald Trump is in some ways quite typical in, in living in this geopolitical imaginary, which really has its roots in, in, in the Cold War? because i think you know uh, before trump was elected i mean i, I remember reading a book uh, an annotated collection of of his speeches and it was very striking how um his uh, his views around japan in particular seem to very much mirror his views around uh, china it's all this talk about their ripping us off and this sense of of a, of a um a, a trade threat And it feels, again, regarding Iran, that it's very much that kind of period which informs Trump's decision making. But do you think that's probably quite typical of the U.S. political class in general?
0: Not in general. I think it's more specific. It tends to be more on the Republican right. In the popular level, it tends to be Midwest and Rust Belt. Uh, No, I think on the Democrat side, you have many people who are, if I may use the term, which is a bit nasty to use, many more sophisticated political thinkers. Uh, So I don't think it's a typical of the whole group. But at the same time, we shouldn't underestimate this sort of of almost public mood of the United States being ripped off by others. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, to add to that, in this case, we always tend to forget the real political importance of the evangelical right, particularly the Christian Zionists. And it's notable how Trump made his major speech at the uh, the weekend – at an evangelical Christian rally where he could be absolutely sure of support. And given that the Christian Zionists are utterly supportive of the state of Israel, we shouldn't underestimate that connection as well. But going back to what you said, yes, I think this is it's quite significant in the American political psyche, but not dominant. I think it, it's a much more complex environment than that.
1: Regarding the point about what we're seeing in, in Iran at the moment, the, the, the enormous public protests, and as you say, it's impossible to imagine this is orchestrated given the, given the scale. Do you think the, the, uh, the American security establishment themselves, do you think they are surprised by this? Or, or did, they, you know, did they really imagine that carrying out an operation of this kind would um, serve to um, foster a protest movement within Iran?
0: It depends what you mean by the political establishment. Um, there will be people close to Trump who really believe that this will work and the Iranians will do what they were told. Mm. Uh, but I think there are many other people across the establishment, and probably a lot in the Pentagon, who frankly are not happy with the way things are going, because the Pentagon, you know, has some pretty interesting people in it and some quite interesting strategists who do take a longer view. It is certainly the case that at present. The State Department is probably in its weakest state uh, for decades because so many of the posts have remained unfilled and people who are not of the sort of Trumpian line of thinking have basically taken their money and run and taken early retirement. So in other words, you're not getting the kind of large-scale, detached analysis from the the State Department that you would want. And I think that is a real loss. Um, So, yeah, I think there is certainly miscalculation. And, And I do wonder whether... Trump's decision to say, you hit us back after this and we'll strike 52 targets is an attempt to, to scare the Iranians, having really now appreciated what sort of hornet's nest has been turned up with this assassination.
1: Presumably part of, part of that is a, a fear of what will happen within uh, within Iraq, where uh, recently we saw a very, a very large scale popular protest movement in Iraq, primarily uh, focused on the Iraqi government, but also at, at the United States and, and the role of Iran in the country as well. And, and it seems very much the case that by carrying out this action, Trump has served to really shore up the Iranian position and to to hugely damage the American position. And it, it, it looks like American forces could be could be forced to to leave. So again, do you think they just didn't? Appreciate what the consequences were going to be in, in
0: Iraq? The people who pushed Trump to do this, including Trump himself, yes, I would agree, I don't think they appreciated it. And it's quite incredible in that there's a lot of opposition to the regime in Iran, mainly because of economic conditions, uh, the problems with the sanctions, but also very strongly because of corruption and maladministration and the role of the senior clergy. You're now getting that in Iraq, where again, very strong demonstrations against the government from young Shia Muslims, almost entirely, far less Sunnis, um, put down re- pretty repressively, bitterly, viciously over the last two or three months. Yet you're still getting very large numbers of Iraqis who object very strongly to what is done on their territory. Now, not least because the other person, the other key person killed was Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis, who was actually Iraqi-born, born in Basra, although he had a, an Iraqi father and an Iranian mother but you know he was the head effectively of the popular mobilization fronts so essentially i think this has been taken much more personally within iraq than the americans would have expected and i mean you have this extraordinary announcement on monday um, that the united states forces in iraq 5000 plus of them supporting the iraqi army largely in its fight against isis is now stopping all Offensive operations or aiding offensive operations against ISIS, and restricting itself to guarding its own people. So again, this is a this is a joy as far as the ISIS leadership is concerned.
1: On the popular uh, mobilisation fronts, uh, these are really fully integrated in, into the Iraqi military, right? Even legally.
0: Uh, yes, they are. I mean, the point is they were hugely significant after the Iraqi army, really corrupt and disorganised, had failed to hold on to Mosul. And essentially, the the popular, essentially, mobilization front militias, they had become more and more significant, so much so that when the big American and British and French air war started against ISIS to enable the Iraqi army to move towards towns like uh, Mosul, essentially, it was these forces which were key, which brings you this huge irony that if you look at the siege and taking of Mosul, where you had American and French artillery, lots of American, British and other air power. But on the ground, the key people were actually were the front run by Kasim Soleimani. And although you cannot say they were close allies remotely, what certainly seems to be in the case is they did try to avoid treading on each other's toes. So now, only three years later, Soleimani is the world's greatest terrorist and obviously has to be uh, terminated.
1: And I mean, presumably, the, the Iranians weren't expecting anything like this, because it doesn't seem as if Soleimani was, you know, he wasn't sort of uh, deep underground, you know, there, there, there wasn't an attempt to very carefully sort of hide his role in, in, in Iraq, right? He was operating relatively in the open.
0: Not only that, I mean, this particular convoy had Soleimani, Mohandas, it also had, I think, as a, a very senior person in Hezbollah in um, Lebanon, who was actually, as it happened, Soleimani's son-in-law, so essentially, yes, they would certainly not have had those three people in a small convoy of a couple of SUVs uh, if they were expecting any kind of attack like this. So, yes, it caught them by surprise, which is, I think, why there is frank consternation uh, and not sure what to do next on the part of the Iranian leadership, both the theocratic and the military leadership. Yes, um, has, uh, the, the, the new... Director of the Quds Force, uh, General Eshmael Khani was quickly brought in. He was the deputy before. And yes, planning will be done, but it will have set them back. But in any case, I don't think they ever intended, once they'd realized what had happened, to react very quickly. This will come not necessarily in days, more likely in weeks and months.
1: On the Iranian military, um, the the Iranian military in general, but especially the the Quds force commanded by Soleimani, are specialists in unconventional hybrid forms of warfare. Could you talk a little bit about the origins of Iran's defense doctrine and and how this reliance on asymmetric warfare is related to Iran's experience in in the Iran-Iraq war and also related to Iran's comparatively small small military budget vis-a-vis its uh, regional rivals?
0: Well, if you look at the origins, and this does relate to some extent to Soleimani's own experience, um, he was in a, a youngish, I think, late teenager when the revolution took place. He was from a very poor background. His father was a farmer in southeast Iran. Uh, he had four, five years of compulsory primary education. Then, at the age of thirteen, uh, left school and tried to work to help pay off debts that his father had incurred, I think, from landlords. Um, At the time of the, just before the revolution, he was really infused and radicalized by one of the preachers, joined the revolution very much virtually at the start in 1979, and quickly got attracted to what was becoming called the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which was set up, one has to remember, to counter a possible counter-coup by the military who still supported the Shah. Hmm. And then he had this extraordinary experience throughout much of the Iran-Iraq war from 80 to 88, and saw many of his young comrades killed or hideously wounded, and he survived. But he learned a heck of a lot about the kind of warfare that was being fought then, the bitter trench warfare, and the huge casualties that the, the Iranians suffered in particular. I was in Tehran four or five years after the end of the war, and, you know, if you went anywhere near any of the cem- cem- cemeteries uh, on virtually any evening, you will see you know, many women, older women, there grieving because of loss of their sons. And that was a very major impact within Iran. And I think from that period on, they recognized they would have to fight in different ways. Mm. Also, again, it's, it's not a diversionary point. In 1988, right at the end of the Iran-Iraq war, I can't go into the details, but the United States uh, essentially took the side of Iraq. And when a uh, U.S. frigate was mined, I don't think it caused any loss of life. It was the Samuel Roberts, I believe. When it was mined, the presumption was an Iranian mine. And this was used as a cause for war. And the American Navy then took out um, Iraq's, uh, Iran's most modern frigate and damaged another frigate and sank a patrol craft, killed about 100 sailors. Um, that was, in fact, almost taking out the best of the Iranian Navy. So they knew from the start they could not take on the United States in this way. And ever since mm. then, but especially under Soleimani over the last 15 or so years, it's been developing tactics of irregular warfare, hybrid warfare, usually using um, proxies, local militias, and the rest, but very well organized and trained, often from the center. And I don't think the Americans, or for that matter, the British, really have a handle on how effective this is. I mean, a very good example would be the drone attack on the uh, big um, Saudi air f- uh, oil facility at Abcake just a few weeks ago, where, in fact, it was assumed that any attack of this sort would come from Yemen. But it didn't. It came from Western Iran and they evaded the limited air defences the Americans were put in. But that caused a lot of problems. The Upcake plant is a huge plant. Although it was not put out of action for more than a short space of time, it showed what they were capable of. There are huge vulnerabilities in many parts of the Gulf which relate primarily to oil and its exports. Remember, whereas Gulf oil was crucially important for the United States at the time of the revolution, it isn't now because of the way they do fracking. In fact, they're almost self-sufficient in oil. And essentially, if oil prices go through the roof, it's going to affect American allies a lot more than the Americans themselves.
1: Regarding the, the, um, the type of adversary the Iranian military would, would be to the, to the Americans, would it be more akin, obviously on a vastly larger scale, but more akin to the um, experience that the Israelis had during the 2006 war with Hezbollah rather than, say, uh, the, the first Gulf War or, or, or the second uh, Iraq war?
0: Well, that is what the Iranians would expect. I mean, the army is not that well equipped. Uh, it is the guard corps... It- and possibly the Navy into some elements of the Air Force, although the Guard Corps has very strong links there. Um, those are the key components. The Iranians know full well that the United States could launch a series of attacks which would hugely damage um, Iran, Iran's basically conventional military superstructure, immensely if they so chose to. And so Iran is planning on that probability. And so this is why you have the dispersal of the speedboats, the submarines, and all kinds of things, and also the way in which so much of this is spread overseas. And a notable example is the very large number of unguided rockets which Hezbollah has available. So if there is any kind of major war, basically the Iranians would try and force another front to open uh, to really occupy the Israelis, who incidentally have been doing a big share of the air attacks in Iraq and Syria in recent weeks and recent months. So, yes, I think what you would see is very much focusing on the assumption that if there was a major conflict, the uh, Iran would lose most of its conventional military capability, which is why you will have all the disbursement and the rest already underway.
1: Regarding the Americans and, and uh, the American Navy specifically, how vulnerable is the US Navy's surface fleet to Iranian missiles or, or, or those of uh, proxy forces or, or Iranian allies? Because, I mean, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about the possible um, obsolescence of, uh, of, in particular, aircraft carrier groups because of the threat from, from, from ballistic missiles and in, uh, and in the more distant future as well, perhaps swarming drone attacks. I mean, do you think that sort of talk is, is currently exaggerated?
0: It's currently exaggerated, yes, because the American Navy, I don't think there's any circumstances now in which the U.S. Navy would send a carrier battle group into uh, the Persian Gulf or even into the Gulf of Oman. Mm. They, they would keep it well out at sea, of the Arabian Sea, nowhere near in range of any ballistic missile available to Iran or indeed, even if it's based in Yemen, with any degree of accuracy. So I think they would really keep things out. Smaller ships, that is very different. And in this connection, um, one has to remember that Britain is not a small player in this. Mm. You know, for nearly two years now, we've had formally a base in Bahrain from which we operate these four mine hunters, quite key ships within the wider space of things. And now we have a frigate permanently based there. It's currently HMS Montrose on a three-year uh, tour with crew changes regularly. And they've even put a Type 45 destroyer in. First, it was HMS Duncan. That's been replaced by HMS Defender. And then, of course, you have the support ships as well. So if things did actually escalate seriously, then it would be very unlikely for Britain to stay out of it. I'm not entirely sure that uh, Mr. Uh, Johnson realises this.
1: What's your sense of the British position? Do you, th- I mean, you you do think we would effectively be forced into supporting American action were it to happen? However, uh, you know, however little enthusiasm there might be amongst the Conservative government to do that.
0: Well, the first point here is just how efficient is the Conservative government turning out to be? There are clearly be many complaints from civil servants that apart from Rob and the Ministry of Defence, there just have not been people around. They stayed on holiday, mm. and so I think now I think you're getting the. The awakening, sort of yesterday and today, about the circumstances they face, and the immediate response is to say, "Look, when we're supporting the United States in general terms, but for heaven's sake, cool it. We don't want a major war." And I think that will be the tack they take, at least for the time being, um, because they do know that you know there's so much interlocking in this um, that they can't avoid an involvement. It's extraordinary in a way, and that the, you know the new base in uh, in Bahrain. And the much bigger one being built at Dukum on the uh, Gulf of Oman, coast of Oman, which is big enough to take nuclear-powered submarines and even aircraft carriers. That's all part of this sort of conservative move to go back east to Suez. Um, But basically, you do not have the support ships to do this in any real war zone, particularly if you're putting an aircraft carrier in. Mm. Uh, So this is a very early test for the new if you like, sort of imperial outreach of Britain. I mean, going back east to Suez, seriously, for the first time in God knows how long, is quite a big change, much short, much bigger than people realise. And I think there may be quite a lot of second and third thought, thoughts given to this, given the nature of this particular crisis. It will depend, of course, on how it plays out. But at an early stage, I think there are some worries among thinking Conservatives. It's reflected, incidentally, in some of the surprising columns you're seeing in the likes of the Daily Telegraph. Basically, calling for restraint. Hmm. Okay, the Express and the Sun may not be yet, but the fact that the Telegraph is doing so is actually quite interesting.
1: Yeah, um, just on that point of Britain returning east of east of Suez, could, could you explain the significance of that? Because uh, the history won't be known to everybody.
0: Well, essentially, Britain was a major world player. Uh, in the 1950s, I mean, the, the Royal Navy at the time had five major aircraft carriers, at least two of which, in fact, normally carried tactical nuclear weapons for use by the scimitars and the buccaneers. And Britain was major east of Suez. It was obviously involved in the confrontation in Borneo and earlier on in the Korean War. It had bases in Singapore and elsewhere. And there were regular deployments of the Royal Navy in numbers in the Indian Ocean, even into the West Pacific. After Suez in 1956 and the recognition among the Conservatives that Britain was no longer the imperial power that it thought it was, then you had the withdrawal from East of Suez, really, by the 1960s. And ever since then, Britain has not sort of pretended that it is a global power. Mm. And indeed, at the time of the Falklands-Malvinas War, the aircraft carriers were actually destined for either for sale or for the scrap heap. Falklands saved that. Then, of course... Uh, right at the end of the Conservative era, up to 97, and really bought into by Blair, was the idea of going back into this business, which is why you have these two huge aircraft carriers, easily the biggest warships ever built for the Royal Navy, built at great cost with extremely expensive planes, which now enable Britain to sort of play a world role again, or at least supposedly. I remember a senior civil servant from the Ministry of Defence Rather, a, a cynical person telling me, well, of course, the only reason that you really have uh, aircraft carriers is you're going to have a, a big enough deck for the Royal Marines to beat the treat at sunset in a tropical port. It's all about <laughs> presentation the, of the, power. The
1: optics, yeah.
0: The optics, absolutely the optics. Uh, and I think this may cause quite a lot of thinking about this because, I mean, people within the Navy, and you know, I do lecture at defence colleges, will say privately – the way we're going, we're going to end up with a two-ship navy. We can keep one big ballistic missile submarine at sea with all the support it needs, far more incidentally than people realise, and one aircraft carrier battle group at sea, and very little mm. else. And many of them are really quite bothered about this because there's so few other ships to command. You know, what's a career worth if you can't command anything bigger than a mine hunter?
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you'd like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.